quality of life and symptoms is still important to patients. And I think we shouldn't try and lose sight of that. And really, to my mind, um, what this study shows is that we have to really think about the patient's cohort that we're undertaking these procedures on and think about what really matters to them. When saving lives is what you do, your standards are anything but standard. In fact, you set them higher than most to deliver results that patients can depend on. You refuse to compromise. We couldn't agree more. We are Edwards Life Sciences, and like you, we believe that good is never good enough. Rising to the challenge of today's TAVR patients isn't just a mission, it's a commitment. And because you set a higher standard, we set our sights on meeting you there. Welcome to the higher standard, your standard. Learn more at edwardstaver.com. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD from the Cleveland Clinic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, this is, you know, coming at the conclusion of transcatheter cardiovascular therapeutics annual scientific sessions. As you know, some incredible science was presented this year. This was actually, I would say, the first year when, you know, our colleagues were back in person in Orlando. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to go. I was, um, you know, partaking in the conference virtually, but I, I heard great feedback and I can't wait to be back in person. Um, and, you know, with me is, um, is someone who, like Deepak Bhatt, is, is omnipresent. I, I'd like to use that or at least associate that word and that terminology with, with this particular guest as well, as I have with Dr. Bhatt in the past. Um, Dr. Mamas Mamas is a consultant interventional cardiologist. He is professor of cardiology at Kiel University. He runs a terrific outcomes cardiovascular research group. Um, he recently took over as the, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Mamas Mamas, but as the as the medical as the medical director for TCTMD.com. Um, and um, he is in India, he's in UK, he's in the US, he is in many parts of the world. Um, and he is here to, with us today to talk about some of the lead-breaking clinical science presented at uh, TCT 2021. So without much further ado, Dr. Mamas Mamas, welcome on the show and thank you so much for doing this for us. So no, thank you, Anka. What a generous introduction. I'm not sure I'd put myself even in the same room as Dr. Bat, let alone on the same level. But anyway, thanks for the introduction. Um, so I'm a senior clinical editor at TCT MD. Again, I was very much enjoying TCT remotely, unfortunately. President Biden um, allowed um, Europe and the UK to leave the red list a week after TCT. So I was enjoying it like you remotely, but that doesn't detract from the late breaking science. I think it was a great meeting, some really interesting uh, studies presented, and I really look forward 
to discussing um, both the studies, but more importantly for our listeners, the clinical relevance of these studies and how it really changes how we practice. Um, absolutely. So let's just dive right in. You know, the first trial that um, we're going to be discussing for our listeners is the FAME 3 trial, which um, I, I'm just going to give the, the description, um, and that is FFR-guided percutaneous coronary intervention with current-generation drug-eluting stents in comparison with surgical revascularization. So maybe if you want to talk to us about, um, you know, the study, its design, and and um, some of the salient features and what were some of the findings, and then we'll go over its relevance to our clinical practice. Yes, I mean, I guess since the Syntax trial many years ago, which was predominantly undertaken um, with bare metal or first-generation drug-eluting stents, um, where we really used angiographic criteria um, for revascularization, the field has moved on, our clinical practice has moved on. We very much these days use more contemporary platform, but importantly, we also use more physiology-guided approaches, particularly you know, with important trials such as FAME, FAME2, DEFER, trials that have really um, you know, driven the way that we practice interventional cardiologists and may, really made us think about which lesions we should be intervening upon. So FAME3, as you say, was a randomized controlled trial comparing surgery with PCI driven by um, pressure wire assessment. And so we were, in effect, comparing um, functionally significant coronary disease in patients with triple vessel coronary artery disease with surgery. They had um, a primary endpoint of um, death, stroke, MI, and repeat revascularization, which was their uh, composite endpoint, MACE, at one year. And they have key secondary endpoints, which haven't been reported yet, of three and five year follow-up for death, myocardial infarction, and stroke. The patients with three-vessel coronary disease were randomized either to FFR-guided PCI or coronary artery bypass grafting, which was based on the coronary angiogram. So this was not an FFR-driven uh, revascularization uh, for cabbage in the surgical arm. What were the main findings of the study? Well, the main findings of the study, that was that for the primary endpoint, um, the hazard ratio was one5 Five with 95% confidence intervals, 1.1 to 2.2 um, for um, PCI compared to cabbage. So the absolute event rates were 6.9% at one year for PCI um, for um, cabbage and 10.6% for PCI. And it didn't meet non-inferiority uh, margins. And so, you know, we, we found PCI to be non-inferior or inferior to surgery at the one-year endpoint. I think, you know, there's there's a lot of ways that we can assess this, but that was really the landmark result. And perhaps we can discuss, you know, how, how we interpret this and the sorts of impact on how this will affect our clinical practice. Yeah, no, so thank you for going over with us the, the synopsis of the trial. Um, you know, some salient features, you know, which, um, 
you know, piqued my, my interest, uh, you know, as someone, um, as a clinician who, who, who does interventions, um, I think about, you know, about 30, 30% of patients were diabetics, um, you know, ACS presentation in about 40% of these patients. Um, Zintac score was low to intermediate, uh, you know, for the vast majority, you think 33% with a low syntax score and intermediate was about 50%. I think the mean syntax score was 26. Um, so, so, you know, but, and I'm, I'm sort of enumerating these, these salient features because, uh, you know, th- these are going to lead up to my, you know, couple of questions that I'm going to be asking you. Um, the first question is, uh, do you think, do you think these findings can be extrapolated to instantaneous wave free ratio? Because that is what I use in clinical practice. I don't use FFR anymore. So that's question one. And then the second question is, um, do you, do, do you in, in your practice use FFR, IFR or coronary physiology assessment in ACS? Those are the, those are the first couple of questions. Yeah, I mean, I guess with regards to your first question, um, so in my unit, we have both IFR and FFR. I generally prefer to use FFR. I guess that's you know, how I was trained. Um, I don't think that we can differentiate between FFR and IFR. I mean, we, we know that the Sweetheart um, study presented also at TCT suggests that there was no significant difference in outcomes in patients randomised to FFR or IFR. In terms of whether we use um, pressure wire indices in patients with acute coronary syndrome, I think that's a really good question. I generally don't like using it in um, patients presenting with acute coronary syndrome. Why? Well, because, you know, pressure wire assesses functional significance. And of course, we know that in acute coronary syndrome, you don't necessarily have to have a functionally significant stenosis to have an acute coronary syndrome. And many acute coronary syndromes, as we see from the Erosion 3 study presented at TCT, um, have luminal stenosis of less than 70%. And they may not be functionally significant, but nevertheless, they may be high risk. Um, and so we, we, we know from imaging that um, things like thin cap fibroatheroma, we know that um, high lipid burden pretend to, or are strong predictors of worse outcomes in the longer term. And my worry is that using pressure wire based indices, whether they be resting indices or um, adenosine indices, would miss many of these um, lesions. And certainly from trial evidence, we see, for example, from Flower MI, that in um, revascularization of non-target lesions, um, you actually get a, a worse outcomes. I mean, not significantly worse, but certainly, you know, the numbers appear much worse in the pressure wire guided arm. And I think this is one of the big discussion points of the FAME 3 study, in that decisions were being made in 40-50% of the patients with an acute coronary syndrome based on pressure wire assessment. We know from the trial that a quarter of lesions were deferred by virtue of the fact that they were negative for pressure wire. What we don't know is whether the subsequent events that occurred in the PCI arm occurred in 
lesions or in vessels that were treated or in those vessels that were deferred by virtue of a negative FFR. And I think this is a really important point when you consider the findings of the FAME 3 study. Yeah, no, I, I think I think my practice sort of resonates yours in that I don't commonly use pressure wire assessment or coronary physiology assessment in patients with an acute coronary syndrome. And um, I think in having this discussion with with Ziad when, when I was presenting at TCT on a separate topic, I, I think we discussed that these are different patient subsets. I mean, you know, acute coronary syndrome is different from stable ischemic heart disease. And uh, I think in, in someone with acute coronary syndrome, well, you know, the cat is out of the box, so to speak. And um, it's, it's a different milieu. Uh, it's it's a different thrombotic milieu. It's it's it's, it's a different um, clinical spectrum altogether. Uh, and so I, I completely agree with you that physiology assessment in that patient subset, to me at least, does not make a lot of a lot of clinical sense. And, and you know, sort of, we we now have data. You know, at least you you talked about flower AMI um, showing that you know, our, our clinical judgment in that regard was spot on. Um, so no, thank you for answering those questions. Um, and then another follow-up question is that if you if you parse these data um, from FAME 3 based on stratification with regard to syntax scoring, uh, how, do you, how do you read into it? Uh, because again, that is something which, you know, I think is, is fairly discussed, you know, depending on the syntax score, should, should we send these patients to surgery versus offer them PCI? Well, I think there's two points to that question. I think the first point is, what did the trial show? So the trial showed that um, in a post hoc analysis, and remember when you're looking at subgroups in the context of a negative trial, then they can only really be thought of as hypothesis generating rather than driving practice. What the investigators found was that in the low syntax uh, score group, i.e. in those with a syntax score of 0 to 22, paradoxically or interestingly, there was better outcomes in the PCI group compared to the surgical group. And the surgical um, patients had worse outcomes um, in the intermediate and high syntax score. So for the low syntax score, um, the PCI one-year event rate was 5.5% compared to 8.6% in the cabbage arm. I think, to my mind, what is more important and what I'm really looking forward to is looking at what the functional syntax score is. Because in my mind, what the baseline syntax score is doesn't really matter because you're not basing your revascularization on the presence of anatomical disease, but you're basing your revascularization, certainly in the PCI arm, based on functional disease. And so there will be a group of patients that um, entered the trial with triple vessel disease where only two lesions or two vessels were functionally significant or only one vessel was functionally significant. And so to my mind, you know, in a patient, say, with a high syntax score where only one vessel was significant, that would actually place them in a low functionally significant or functional syntax score. And perhaps those patients are behaving very differently from other patients that have true um, high syntax scored ba based on functional indices. So 
you know, from my perspective, it'll be really interesting to look at that data. I think the second data that I think is really important to this discussion is that in effect, you have two groups of patients um, in the PCI arm. You have a group of patients with functionally significant triple vessel disease. You also have a group of patients where they've got anatomical triple vessel disease, but may only have functionally significant single or two vessel disease. I'm still unclear in my mind which of those groups is driving the worst outcomes in PCI. It may be that actually those with functionally significant triple disease may be better off having a bypass operation. Alternately, it may be that actually the higher event rate is driven by the lesions that we defer, particularly in the acute coronary syndrome patients, which goes back to our point that we discussed earlier. So I think moving forwards, um, and certainly, you know, interviewing Bill Fearon um, as part of my TCTMD podcast, I think that there's going to be a lot more interesting analyses um, from this trial that will really, you know, dig down into how we interpret this data, because I still think there's a lot of question marks to my mind. And I think just thinking about it in a very unrefined way of you know, what the syntax score is, what the one year outcomes is, probably does a disservice to the trial. I think it probably provides us much more insight and it's something that I think is going to be discussed for many years to come. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot to learn from this trial. And I think the more we let the data sit and marinate, I think we'll, we'll start garnering more questions. We'll also um, start you know, having a better handle of the data because you know, it's still so fresh. Um, so moving on, uh, the, the second trial that I want to talk about, which again is both practice informing as well as practice changing, at least um, you know, to my practice. And um, I've had debates with colleagues on this you know, in, in our clinical practice. Um, I've, I've you know, at times left these lesions alone, at times I've been you know, asked to stent these lesions at the behest of, of, of a general cardiologist who uh, referred the patient to me. Um, you know, but, you know, clinic, clearly an area of unmet need. Uh, we needed data and we, we now have data, which, you know, is, is provocative. Um, certainly calls for a bigger randomized clinical trial with more clinical endpoints. But I'm talking about erosion 3, which is, um, you know, prospective randomized control trial um, of OCT-guided versus angiography-guided um, stent deployment in patients um, who presented with, with an acute coronary syndrome, um, you know, particularly ST elevation myocardial infarction. So you want to talk about that trial? Yes. So um, this was a randomized control trial um, of STEMI patients in which um, those with TIMI3 flow close to angiography and aspiration and a diagnosis of less than 70% randomized to OCT guidance versus angiogram guidance. And the um, endpoints were the rate of stent implantation during primary PCI, that was one of the endpoints. And the second endpoint was MACE within one month and one year. I think this is you know, a really 
fundamental trial. Um, I think, why is it fundamental? Well, because imaging is underutilized in many countries. Um, and I would say in the United States, particularly it is. Um, we see that, we, we, we see data from NCDR uh, registry that uh, Bobby Ye, Sunil Rao presented at TCT suggesting that you know less than five percent of PCIs undertaken in the United States um, utilize imaging. We saw that in FAME 3. I mean maybe a point we can discuss a bit later on was around you know whether the low rates of intravascular imaging only 12 percent in this landmark randomized trial may have impacted on clinical outcomes. I think erosion 3 is important because I think you know, imaging is so useful in STEMI, um, not only in guiding your strategy, so, you know, stents that you use in these patients, but also really helping you to understand what the mechanism of the acute coronary syndrome is. And I think, you know, many of us are moving away from, you know, stenting every STEMI you see and really thinking more around, you know, what's the etiology of this? Because clearly, having someone present with a SCAD, the treatment would be very different from someone presenting with an erosion versus a plaque rupture, for example. Um, so what the trial looked at was in 246 patients that were randomized, um, they followed these patients up, um, 116 in the OCT arm, 119 in the angio-guided arm, and looked at rate of stenting. And there was something like a 15% um, reduction in the rate of stenting at, um, at the time of PCI in the OCT guided arm. It's quite interesting um, in terms of, you know, what, what, what they found in the OCT guided arm um, and what they did about what they found. And so, um, they found plaque rupture events, which accounted for about 66% of the cohort, of which they stented around half in the OCT arm. They found erosions in 26% of cases, which the majority were deferred. And they found things like calcified nodules as well in 5% of cases. At one year, there was no significant difference in hard clinical endpoints, but of course, you know, this, this trial to my mind, isn't about being adequately powered um, for hard clinical endpoints. And it can't be with 100 um, PCI cases. I mean, you, you have no hope of detect detecting meaningful differences in hard clinical outcomes, but rather describing, you know, what, how understanding what imaging shows impacts on your decision to stent in these patients. And it certainly reduces stenting in 15% of cases. Yeah, so, you know, first off, I think I really like to congratulate the investigators in in performing a study like this. Um, you know, I think um, to walk away without stenting, despite having, you know, imaging evidence of plaque rupture, at least will not happen in, in any, I, I, I can't say any U.S. lab, but for the vast majority of U.S. labs now, you just brought you just brought up the point of imaging being utilized uh, poorly in 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 the U.S. and um, you know I agree. I mean, like you know the the data that um, Dr. Rao actually shared his 
poster on on Twitter is is extremely telling. It's extremely telling, and and we we ought to do better. But at least uh, you know each time I personally have have visualized plaque rupture on imaging intracoronary imaging. It's as an interventionist, it's hard for me to not stent that lesion. Would you agree? Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's one of the questions that I raised during the late-breaking trial question and answer session. I asked that very question. I, too, would feel uncomfortable in leaving a plaque rupture event. I think one of the challenges in OCT, particularly if you have a lot of thrombuses around, is knowing whether it really is an erosion or whether you've just missed a plaque rupture because of you know, heavy thrombus burden. Um, But certainly I wouldn't have a problem in leaving um, and treating with optimal medical therapy. Erosions where you don't have significant um, high-risk features on the OCT. Um, So, you know, patients without thin cap fibroatheroma or patients without significant MLA reduction or patients... um, without you know a, a, a large lipid burden in the wall, I think for those patients, it would be reasonable and I feel quite comfortable in treating them medically. And we have a lot of good um, OCT studies published um, which with angiographic follow-up and OCT imaging at one year, showing that you know, there's a relatively low event rate in leaving these patients. And I think you know, th- th- this is a good strategy for these patients because let's not forget that implanting stents is not a benign procedure. And certainly there are um, events associated with stents. And particularly for young patients, you know, I think we, we have to be much more thoughtful about which patients we, you know, leave stents in, given that, you know, even the latest generation stents, we know that there is an event rate associated with the presence of these stents in coronary arteries for many years down the line. I mean, Greg Stone published, you know, a great paper um, in the last year or so showing this. I think for plaque rupture, though, I agree with you. You know, I I would feel incredibly uncomfortable in leaving these. I don't think that an OCT study, which only has 60% um, plaque rupture events, will tell us um, particularly whether it's safe to do or not. It's grossly underpowered. Um, so I personally wouldn't recommend we do this. But I think in terms of imaging, you know, we, we know that um, there are major disparities in sex-related outcomes following myocardial infarction. We know that women are much more likely to sustain things like Minoka, things like SCAD. And, you know, putting the stent in based on angiographic um views I think is inappropriate in these patients and I think we do you know women a disservice in you not utilizing imaging to further understand um, why they've come in with an acute coronary syndrome because it can completely change your management and I think this is what really the study highlights. Yeah no I, I think again I mean I was just fascinated by you know the fact that the investigators were able to complete the study we're able to get the protocol approved by the institutional review board and by the ethics committee and actually complete the study. Um, so, you know, I think again, you know, really, uh, really fascinating study. And uh, I think it definitely adds more data to this, um, to this 
you know, field. And, you know, I think the more and more we um, foster the utilization of imaging amongst our colleagues, I think it's, I think studies like these are going to become extremely important. The key thing to my mind is also thinking about the results of other studies. So, you know, if you can go back to FAME 3, I mean, in FAME 3, only 12% of patients received intravascular imaging. Now, this, to my mind, is rather remarkable, particularly given that, you know, we have trials such as the Ultimate study, um, which showed target lesion failure was reduced almost by half within a year. Um, we know that this was a complex group of patients in FAME 3. On average, they received 80 millimeters of stents. They had, you know, a significant portion of bifurcations. Um, and so, you know, to my mind, I, I don't understand why we're, you know, accepting suboptimal PCI particularly in landmark trials, and then a surprise when we have inferior outcomes to surgery. Yeah, no, extremely um, thought-provoking comment there, and I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, over the past, I would say, a year, I've, I've, I've become, I mean, I, I think I've, 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 I use intravascular imaging particularly, I mean, IVIS for the most part, um, you know, fairly regularly, in almost every PCI, um, and um, you know, I was, I, I would, I would, I agree. I would be, I was a late adopter. Uh, you know, I'm, I mean, I know I've, I've listened to your talks, and you, you've, you've, you've been using intravascular imaging on a regular basis for a long time now, uh, and um, uh, you know, I think I was listening to one of your talks when. Um, you know, I was. It was very impressionable that I should I should start using, particularly with regard to some of the data you've brought up even during this talk, and that is, uh, you know, target lesion failure fifty percent is is not acceptable. Um, you know, in the with the absence of imaging, so why are we why are we not doing what's best for our patients? Is is a question we ought to ask ourselves more than any more than anyone else, quite frankly. Yeah, another point to bring up is many people think that imaging is useful only in complex lesions. And of course, you know, that, that's one argument. And for example, the EAPCI, your association for PCI, have released a consensus statement which really argues for the utilization of intravascular imaging in complex cases. If you actually look at um, the ultimate trial, even up to three-year outcomes, there is the interaction um, by lesion complexity is negative. So what it's saying is that there is as much of a benefit in simple lesions as there are for complex lesions. And PCR and intravascular imaging is useful not only in guiding your PCI, um, so looking at the Clark morphology, looking at the degree of calcification, helping you um, plan your case, whether it be you know, left main or bifurcations, and optimizing your outcomes. But it's also very useful in telling you when not to stent. Um, so the case in point is SCAD. And yes, there are some SCADs that are really obvious um, on angiographic views, but there are others that 
aren't all that obvious. And, you know, I've posted many on social media, as have others, which look like, you know, simple type A lesions that most of us would stand day in, day out. But you do the intravascular image and it's a scad lesion. Um, or you do the intravascular image and you recognize other higher risk features um, that you wouldn't necessarily see. So in my practice, I do 100% intravascular imaging. I personally would suggest that um, people move towards that. And I think until, you know, we, we, we do do optimal PCI, I just struggle to think how we're going to be able to match some of the outcomes that are seen with surgery in the pivotal trials. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more, which, by the way, is a great segue for the next trial that we would want to discuss um, and I think would be, I believe, would be the last trial for the podcast for this episode, um, and that is uh, the Optimum trial, which, again, uh, I mean, you brought up left main and you brought up complex um, high-risk and indicated patients and complex lesions and, uh, you know, not infrequently, particularly with the advent of medical therapy in 2021, we encounter disease, you know, subsets and patient subsets and lesions, which, um, you know, are, are complex. And unfortunately, you know, patients are older, have multiple comorbidities and for, for uh, you know, multitude of reasons are surgical turndowns, as they call it, or surgically ineligible patients. Um, so Optimum was basically looking at outcomes of percutaneous revascularization for management of patients of, of this, sub, this particular subset. So do you want to talk about this study for our listeners? Yeah, you see, I think this is a really interesting study. Um, the issue of surgical turndowns, of course, you know, these are patients that never make it to randomized control trials. And actually, you know, we hardly ever see them in observational work. I mean, you know, you're, you're active in the field. You produce great output um, from your team. I'm active in the field. And many of the databases that we use, whether it be national U.S. databases or the national uh, U.K. PCI registry, doesn't really have any data around surgical turndown patients, who they are, why they were turned down and what their outcomes are. And I think this is really important, particularly given that, as we know, the population is becoming much more comorbid, much more elderly. And th this group of patients is increasing. You know, we, we are all encountering them much more commonly. And really, it's a challenge to understand, you know, what we do with these patients. So I think, you know, th this, this registry is such an important registry. So in essence, it's a registry of um, 750 surgically ineligible patients as deemed by the heart team, enrolled in 22 US centers. Um, 720 of these patients were entered into uh, the PCI arm. And this is where um, the, uh, Dr. Kansari reported um, and presented the results. And the primary objective was 30 day in hospital mortality in the PCI cohort predict compared to what the predicted um, STS surgical risk score was. And they had a number of secondary um, objectives, including um, what 30 day um, in hospital mortality um, compared to logistic Euroscore and the surgeon's predicted risk. 
as well as some quality of life and angina questionnaires at six and 12 months. And really what this study showed was, you know, what these patients are like. So this study showed that, you know, these patients were on average 70 years old, over half of them were diabetic, um, over one in six of them had prior cabbage, um, close to a third had chronic kidney disease, um, a significant proportion had impaired LV function, a quarter of them had heart failure. Um, and we also found you know, things like um, wh- wh- why they were surgically ineligible and you know, things like poor distal targets in 20% of patients, severe LV dysfunction, 15%, lung disease, frailty, um, end-stage renal disease. So, you know, this was a really high-risk cohort. And again, it gave us information around, you know, what, what are the lesions that we're having to treat? So 80% of these patients had severely calcified disease. 80% of them had bifurcations. Over two-thirds had CTOs. Um, over half of them had a high syntax score of greater than 33. So, you know, this is the sort of patient that, you know, we, we all encounter in the MDT. But having outcome data is really important. And I think it sort of raises more discussion points, not just in terms of, you know, what the outcomes were, but rather, you know, where should we be or who should be doing these PCIs? Where should they be happening? Should they be happening only in surgical centres or should they be happening in any centre? Should we be reporting um, these um, cases as part of our publicly reported outcome measures? Um, Will this drive people from doing case selection and shying away from these patients, particularly given that the optimum data set showed you know, significant angina and quality of life benefits in these patients. I mean, you know, like you said, um, um, you know, extremely challenging group of patients to um, to manage. <laughs> you know, I, actually, I was I was thinking, you know, I was just, you know, saying to myself that you're really selling this for the surgeon when you were enumerating all the uh, comorbid conditions, and you know, those are the conditions that you know surgeons say, okay, intervention, this is not a surgical patient, good luck, and, you know, hugs and kisses. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, I, I think um, extremely challenging group and, you know, data are lacking, unmet need, and so a very important study. So um, in terms of, you know, summarizing your take home from, from this, from the findings of this study, um, and what would you take away into your clinical practice is, is going to be, you know, my final question for you for this episode. Okay, well, I think in terms of, you know, what the take-home findings were is that, number one, it's really interesting to see that what the actual predicted risk using surgical scores was and what our PCI outcomes were, were very similar. So the surgical scores predicted around the 5% 30-day mortality rate, and that's what our PCI outcomes reported. So I think that's the first take home. I think 
Secondly, there is a benefit in these patients. I mean, often individuals will look at these patients, these multimorbid, frail, high-risk patients, and will often say, well, you know, these are high-risk patients, you know, with a 30-day mortality following PCI of around 5%, should we be doing PCI in these patients? I think, yes, we should. I mean, and the reason I say, yes, we should, is that many of these patients have severe angina and you know, significantly impacting on their quality of life. And we see from this study that um, in terms of quality of life from um, the Seattle Anginal uh, Questionnaire or anginal frequency or KCCQ overall marks improvement. And so, you know, at six months following PCI, um, patients, 80% of patients, 80% of these high-risk patients had no angina. I mean, that, that's amazing. Um, 11% had monthly episodes of angina. Only um, 6% of patients had weekly or daily angina. So you can immediately see that, you know, effectively over 90, 95% of your patients, you're reducing their symptom burden to less than once a month. I think that's really, really important from my perspective. I mean, in randomized controlled trials, we always think about, you know, is there a mortality benefit in patients? But of course, you know, you and I know that often, you know, when you have particularly these patients, you know, that are very elderly, very frail, you know, have comorbid diagnoses of cancer, it's unlikely we're going to um, impact on their longer term prognosis. But quality of life and symptoms is still important to patients. And I think we shouldn't try and lose sight of that. And really, to my mind, um, what this study shows is that we have to really think about the patient's cohort that we're undertaking these procedures on and think about what really matters to them. I think the second point is that looking again, you know, I haven't read the manuscript, it's not been published yet, to my knowledge. This is a really complex group of patients um, with complex lesions. And clearly, not every operator is going to be appropriate to manage these complex group of patients. And not every centre is going to be appropriate as a centre to manage these complex group of patients, particularly in healthcare systems such as the United States, where many states have, um, you know, medium procedural volumes of 20 cases a year. I mean, clearly, you know, operators that do that sort of volume of cases, you know, should not go anywhere near these sorts of patients. And so, you know, to my mind, it's not that the utility of this registry is not to say, look, you know, we're great, we can, we can do this complex PCI and only have a 5% mortality rate, but rather it makes us think about what's important to patient, what outcomes we should be thinking about when doing these patients, and really brings to the fore who should we do in these cases, where should they be done? And really, to my mind, you know, the, the three trials that we've chosen to discuss today are really good. Why they're good? Because I think it's not just about 
the you know what what the headline result is because you know in a year five years down the line we'll forget what the headline result is it's really making us think about what does the trial or how does the trial impact on our clinical practice so for fame three it really makes us think about you know how do we choose which lesions we intervene on is a physiology guided approach the right approach in these patients it makes us think about why is the rate of imaging so low in these cases could our outcomes have been improved with more use of imaging i think with erosion it makes us think that actually using imaging in your acs cases and i use it in 100 of cases really provides um, useful insight in decision making and can impact on your rate of stenting is the rate is the 15 less stenting appropriate well i don't know and we've discussed together that you know certainly both of us would feel quite uncomfortable in not treating plaque ruptures but that's beside the point i think it's really highlighting how useful imaging can be in making an ident- a diagnosis then deciding what to do and i think the final study optimum really highlights that you know in registries we should be capturing or having fields that capture um surgical turndowns i think it's useful for risk scoring but it, again you know as i highlighted before it really makes us think about what we're trying to achieve for patients number one and number two you know what are the skills and requirements in treating these patients and how will that impact on our training programs to train the next generation of interventional cardiologists yeah no i great great summary um, of of the 45 minutes we'll be spent together extremely high yield very thoughtful very educational for me very comprehensive thank you so much for sharing your knowledge sharing your insights and what you've garnered from all these three trials uh, you know taking back to your clinical practice dr mamas mamas it's been a pleasure to have you i've been wanting to do this with you for so long um so thank you so much for being on parallax uh, you know this is a highlight personal highlight for me um and um you know most most likely we'll have you back for you know for this time for your personal journey episode not 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 science but your personal journey episode Well no thank you Ankur I mean I think it's you know it's it's been a real pleasure to be part of your program you know I I I listened to it many times and listened to other colleagues um that joined you and I think you're you know doing a great job in um you know expanding or bringing the personal touch um to you know people that we know professionally but perhaps we don't know personally um and listening to their stories and I think it's certainly inspires the younger generation um so yeah thank you and i think you're doing a great job with these uh, podcasts oh thank thanks a lot it means personally means a lot to me coming from you and so until we speak again you know have a good evening i know it's it's getting late in the uk but thanks a lot for being available oh great thank you thank you we hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by radcliffe cardiology in association with makeadent.org We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favorite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast@ratcliffe-group.com. 
To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.